Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all here in the house of the Lord. We're continuing today in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, Y'all know I I know Spanish because I grew up in Spain, right? Uh, My parents were from the States. My dad was from Portales, New Mexico. My mom was from Garland, Texas. Um, and, but I grew up in Spain because they felt that God called them to the mission field and sent them to Spain. So they went to Spain, served there 28 years. Uh, while we were in Spain, they first went to Valencia, then they went to Granada. But the place they spent the most time in was Badajoz. In fact, they served two full four-year terms in Badajoz, separated by one furlough of one year. Um, so what my dad really felt called to, what my parents felt really called to, was starting new churches. Uh, they went to Granada and started a church. They went to Badajoz, and by the miraculous work of God, uh, a church was established in Badajoz. And... Uh, where there hadn't been a church before. Uh, A church started, and uh, then we went on furlough for a year. During that year of furlough, the church in Balajoz had one deacon, and this deacon uh, liked to take his summer vacations in the city of uh, Cordoba. And in Cordoba, there was another church that was charismatic. Uh, They, you know, speaking in tongues, healing, these kinds of things. Uh, So... This year that we were gone, uh, this deacon spent the whole year convincing everybody that my father and my mother were not operating in uh, the way God would have them, that that they were not leading the ministry in the power of the Spirit the way they should. You can imagine that second four-year term was difficult for my parents. Uh, those actually those final four years coincided with my four years of high school they were the final four years I was on the mission field with them before I came to college Uh, these kinds of problems in churches are nothing new today we're going to start looking at a similar situation that Paul faced in Corinth we're entering into the final four chapters in the letter to the Corinthians Uh, I've titled today's message Jesus centered ministry We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Now, uh, a lot of people say that there's a marked shift in tone between chapters 1 through 9 and chapters 10 through 13. And uh, some scholars even suggest that what we have here are two letters that have kind of been put together because the, the tone, they say, in the second half is very different from the first half. And what I mean by that is... Uh, In the first nine chapters, Paul seems to be very positive about how the church in Corinth is feeling about him. And uh, perhaps the greatest expression of that is when he talks about how they reacted to this painful letter he sent with Titus uh, and how they responded to his words of correction by intervening very forcefully in that matter. Chapter 7, verse 11, he says, What diligence, what defense of yourself, uh, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. In everything you have proven yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So that, that kind of 
paints this picture of the, the church in Corinth is very much on the same page with Paul and they're very uh, united to him and he's talked about how because of their prayers God has been, been working mightily in his ministry in Ephesus and uh, all of that and then we get to chapters 10 through 13 and Paul launches into a defense of his ministry and speaks very forcefully uh, about all of this. And it's very clear in the final four chapters of 2 Corinthians that Paul is addressing some very specific enemies in Corinth who are uh, very much setting their sights on Paul and trying to discredit Paul and his ministry. Uh, so uh, what do we make of this? Well, I would suggest that there is really a common thread through all of this. And uh, I, I am not of the opinion that these are two letters that have kind of been stitched together. If we look at uh, earlier, the first nine chapters, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 24, Paul is defending about criticisms that he changes his travel plans, that he says yes one day and it actually means no, and he's, he's flighty and, and unreliable. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he defends himself against an accusation that he's recommending himself somehow. In chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, he responds to a claim that he's trying to gain control uh, or to constrain the Corinthians in some way. In chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, he says, and this must be something he's being accused of, I haven't corrupted or exploited anyone. So I think sometimes people overstate the shift in tone between the first half and the second half of the letter. I think it's there. It's just that Paul waits until he has finished uh, talking about all the other things and talking about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem before he shifts his attention to directly addressing this problem. Um, so I do, I am of the opinion that this is one letter. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 1. Now I myself, Paul, urge you by the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Now Paul, if you noticed in his letter, and it's true in all of his letters, he's very careful to not uh, just make himself the center of everything. In fact, his letters are actually... Uh, collaborative works uh, and he's writing these letters uh, together with other believers and he alf, almost always is using the plural he talks he doesn't say I he says we uh, over and over but he does know I think he realizes that there is a specific thing going on in Corinth where he personally is kind of the target of these enemies of these people who are uh, directly trying to discredit Paul. And the reason Paul feels compelled to respond to this is not wounded pride. It's not that he's trying to uh, rehabilitate his image in the church in Corinth because of some, uh, some uh, desire to feel good about himself. I think the reason Paul is uh, ready to respond to this is that at the heart the reason people are trying to discredit Paul is that they want to not just discredit Paul, but his teaching about the gospel. You see, I, I get from the things Paul is saying throughout this letter, you've noticed the emphasis thus far on weakness, frailty, suffering, the kinds of things often people do not want to think of as part of following Christ. And Paul continually talks about these things. 
Now, apparently his opponents are trying to sell a Roman version of the gospel, a triumphalist, uh, victorious, health and wealth version of the gospel where following Christ means you're on top and you have health and you have a lot of stuff and you have all this power and, and notoriety and everybody loves you and that's what we should be gunning for in Christ. And Paul sees that as an assault on the very core of what we are meant to be about in Christ. That's why he feels compelled to respond to this. And he knows the accusations are centering on himself. So in these final four chapters, he's going to use himself as the foil to his opponents and their version of the gospel. And Paul's going to focus attention on how he is actually living out his ministry and uh, those who are partnering with him in that work. Uh, and he's going to contrast that with what these opponents are trying to say and sell. I want you to notice though, before we launch into these final four chapters, that Paul predicates it all and he says, let me not just talk about us as a group. I recognize a lot of this focuses on me, so let me, Paul, I myself, let me speak for myself right now. I personally am urging you, I am exhorting you, I am encouraging you strongly. That's what he's intending to do in these final chapters, is to provide a word of exhortation. And what is the, the, the dominating theme of this exhortation? I urge you by the gentleness and kindness of Christ. How much pain would the Christian church have saved itself over the past 2,000 years of its existence if every Christian had always maintained a clear focus on the kindness and gentleness of Christ? Isn't that when we get in trouble? When we start doing things in the name of Christ very much unlike the way Jesus did things. And we forget to operate within the gentleness and kindness of Christ. We operate harshly and vindictively and cruelly. And in his name do things he would never do. Because we have lost focus on who it is we are serving. Paul says, let's remember everything we're about needs to be about the Jesus we are actually supposedly following. How did Jesus come into this corrupt, wicked world and establish the eternal kingdom of God? He never lifted a weapon. He never raised a militia or an army. He never curried the favor of kings and emperors. How did he change the world? And let me make no mistake, the world we live in today is very different from the world that this used to be 2,000 years ago. The impact of the kingdom of Christ on this world is very quantifiable. It has changed the whole tenor of Western society and is changing the tenor of Eastern society as the gospel spreads. How did Christ change the world? with gentleness, with kindness, 
That's always been his MO. And uh, we need to remember this. As we are doing the ministry, we feel we are called to do in Christ. If we are not focusing on who it is that we are serving and we are not operating within the scope of what he's, uh, who he is, we've completely lost it already. We're already on the wrong page. I think there is an allusion in this to something that was no doubt circulating in the oral tradition of the early church. Matthew, I believe, when Paul writes this letter, I believe Matthew has not written his gospel yet. But the things Jesus did and taught have been circulating among Christians. They're aware of these things. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, some words of Christ that surely Paul was familiar with, as were his, his readers in Corinth. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Paul says, let me urge you by the gentleness and kindness of Christ. So many times we forget that. And we become most definitely unkind to one another. As we're supposedly fighting Christ's battles. Let me ask you, as others look at your life, what would they say about you? How do you compare to the gentleness and kindness of Jesus? Let's continue the second half of verse 1. I, who am humble when present among you, but bold toward you when I am away, I now beg you that when I am present, I will not have to be bold with the confidence which I reckon I will dare to use on some who are reckoning us as walking according to the flesh. For though we are walking in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful in God for the destruction of strongholds, destroying arguments and every arrogance being raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience once your obedience has been fulfilled. Paul now is beginning to uh, say some of the things his opponents are saying about him. Supposedly, this is what they're saying about Paul. He's really humble when he's here in person, but then he goes away and he sends these letters that that are like lightning bolts. So they recognize the letters Paul sends, man, they are, there's something powerful going on in these letters. We recognize it today. We read the letters of Paul and they split our heart apart. God has empowered these uh, words Paul had to share with us by his Holy Spirit inspiration, and, and they are powerful. So they say, yeah, okay, yeah, when, when he goes away, he's very bold and has strong things to say, but when he's here, he's like a lamb. 
And I suspect this goes back to what's been happening. Uh, apparently, as we reconstruct things, this is a possible th way things might have happened. While Paul is ministering in Ephesus, he did a very quick trip to Corinth where some kind of dust-up happened and somebody offended Paul and somebody was involved in some kind of sin and uh, Paul uh, kind of took the brunt of it in some way. And apparently, when he was there in person, Paul responded non-aggressively. He probably... Uh, responded in, in uh, gentleness and, and pondering what the best course of action might be and then returns to Ephesus and then feels compelled to write this painful letter that he writes drenched in tears and it's a hard letter and what he does in that letter apparently is call the church to confront this sin and not just gloss it over but deal with it and uh, of course uh, that's what they're talking about. Yeah, when he was here, he was all uh, Mr. Rogers, but now he's Rambo, you know? I mean, he's, what's going on? But I want you to notice that in this letter, we have the, the response to how the Corinthians dealt with his previous letter. Titus has rejoined Paul as he sits down to write 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, when he talks about this earlier in chapter 2, uh, he says, Guys, I'm so glad you received my letter, you dealt with the problem, but here's what I want you to do with the guy who did the, the thing wrong. Forgive him. Love him. Restore him. Lest he be consumed by grief. Because the whole point of God calling us to repentance is not to grind us into the dust and destroy us, but to actually rescue us from the devastation of sin and restore us in love to himself. So Paul's letter on that same topic right now that he's writing is not harsh. It's demonstrating the gentleness he showed in person earlier. So this accusation is false that he's uh, all bluster when he's writing a letter, but he, there's nothing. Uh, he, he's very humble and meek when he's in person. Uh, Paul, I think, is trying to respond to each moment uh, and seeking God's wisdom as what the best way to respond will be in each moment. But he says, guys, don't, don't think I'm not going to deal with this when I get there in person. The, don't, don't be led into a false sense of uh, Paul's never going to do anything about this because the gospel is vitally important and I'm going to fight tooth and nail for you guys to understand the truth of the gospel. So don't make me, when I show up, have to use this boldness that people think I don't have and this confidence uh, and uh, let me tell you who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people in Corinth who are saying that we are operating according to the flesh. Now that's Paul's terminology, and I'm sure the Corinthians were familiar with how Paul used it. Uh, for Paul, the flesh doesn't just mean body, physical existence. He used the flesh as kind of a shorthand for what I bring to the table on my own. My human capabilities, absent the work of the Spirit of God. That is what Paul means by flesh. Everything I can do without God. And he says, people are saying that we're just doing stuff in the power of what we can do. We're not really operating in the power of God. Have you heard those kinds of things before? People who uh, say, I don't even know if that person's a Christian. They don't speak in tongues. 
They've never prayed and somebody's been healed. There's no power of God in their life. They're living like any old human being and uh, there's no evidence that they are operating in the power of God. They're just operating from their own human reservoir of what they have and what they can do. That's the accusation against Paul. I find it very, very interesting that Luke tells us in Acts chapter 19, verses 11, 11 through 16, he tells us about Paul's ministry in Ephesus that he's just come out of. And God was working mightily through Paul to heal. In fact, people were taking handkerchiefs that Paul had touched. They were putting those handkerchiefs on sick people and God was healing them. They were putting those handkerchiefs on people who were demonized and the demons were fleeing. There were a bunch of itinerant uh, exorcists who decided they would try to cast out a demon in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demon says, okay, I know Jesus and I've heard about Paul, but who are you bozos? And beat them up and they left half naked. The word spread. There, there were so many obviously miraculous, powerful things God was doing in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And in responding to this accusation that Paul is operating in the flesh, why does Paul never mention it? Why doesn't he say something about the healings? Why doesn't he say something about the exorcisms? That's clear evidence of God's power at work. I'll tell you why Paul didn't mention it. Because that's the problem these guys in Corinth had. They were obsessed with all the flashy stuff. They were obsessed with the things that they thought were true demonstrations of the power of God. And for them that meant tongues and healing. We already know from 1 Corinthians he spent a whole lot of ink trying to sort their obsession with tongues. And, and uh, Paul is not going to go, he's not going to enter into this on the terms of how they're trying to define what it means to operate in God's spirit. So he never mentions any of that, even though it's going on. He doesn't talk about that. I find that extremely interesting. And he says, yeah, we are walking in the flesh. There's no other way we can live this human life than as humans. Right? I don't get to do this as something other than a human being. That's all I am. So yeah, I will admit that I have to live this life in the flesh. There's no other way I can do it. But the war I am waging, that is not something that I am doing out of the resources I have as a human being. The war I am waging, the weapons that I am using in this warfare are not the kind of things humans get to, to, to wield of their own uh, will. They are powerful in God. And they destroy strongholds. And here's kind of a militaristic language. You might think, ah, okay, now Paul's getting on board. 
That's what we need. We need to take over strongholds and destroy powers and, and do all of this and uh, take over. Uh, you know, we have some really uh, high-ranking Christians in Corinth. Maybe we can take over city council and maybe that could lead to taking over uh, greater positions of authority and power in the government. And maybe what we need to do following Christ is wage war by going to the capital and ensuring that the person we think God needs on the pre in the presence presidency is in the presidency and we will use weapons and violence to make it happen maybe that's what Paul's talking about well he makes sure we don't misunderstand him what are they destroying it's not buildings it's not human lives destroying arguments and every arrogance being raised up against the knowledge of God This is how Paul defines spiritual warfare. It's a war that happens in the minds and souls of human beings. And healings and things like that, God does these things when it pleases him to do so for the purposes he has. But that is not the end goal of the gospel, is for you to get over your cold. That is not what Christ died on the cross to accomplish. For your arthritis to not hurt so bad. That's not why he died. One day, you will be given a body fit for glory. But any healing that's going on right now is just a partial foretaste of what we're talking about. Because your body is going to continue to deteriorate and one day it's going to run out on you and you're going to die. That's, that's the flat truth of it. The gospel is not about God taking this body which is not fit for eternity and somehow turning it into something like that in this life. Healings are signposts pointing to something beyond that's greater. But nobody's going to be healed to the point they're not going to die. What is God really up to? What is the gospel really about? Paul liked to talk about it this way. I want to know God as I have been known by him. This warfare we're fighting, it's not against sin and sickness and poverty. It's against the absence of the knowledge of God. That is the, that is the war front. That's, that's the battle we're fighting in Christ. And Paul says, you want to know that I'm not operating in my own strength? You want to know that God is doing something only God can do? How is it that in Ephesus that there were enough people whose hearts were so transformed by Christ that they took all of their spell books that they had spent a lot of money on and piled them up and burned them? 50,000 silver coins worth of books about magic spells and incantations. They had come to know God and that had transformed their hearts so that they said, not only do I not value this spell book anymore, but I don't want anybody else to be corrupted or tainted or impeded in their ability to come to know God by reading this crap and I'm going to burn it. 50,000 silver coins worth. Paul says, you want to see what God can do and I can't? 
God can change people's hearts so that they no longer rely on what they used to rely on because they found God. That's the proof that God is at work. Changed hearts and lives. People who don't talk about God, but who actually know God. People who don't describe God, but who tell people about the God they know. People who are not experts on theology, but are witnesses of the risen Christ. Consider for a moment, he talks about every arrogance being raised up against the knowledge of God. Consider for a moment the amount of intellectual capital that humans have invested over 2,000 years in trying to raise up barriers between people and the knowledge of God. How many books about atheism are out there? How many things on Facebook or in social media today, how many people are recording videos ridiculing Christ and giving all kinds of these ridiculously poorly argumented things to appeal to emotion or to do whatever, anything and everything, not only to keep themselves from coming before Christ and surrendering before their Creator, but to keep anybody else from doing it either. That is the war front we are facing all these excuses to keep people away from God because that is what the gospel is it's not just about God forgiving your sins it's about God wanting you to know him it's an invitation to a relationship with God Paul says the battle we're fighting it's not about tongues it's not about healings it's not about, it's about people knowing God And only God can make that happen. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're ready to punish every disobedience. And I think Paul is kind of letting his opponents in Corinth know. uh, You're you're trying to twist the message of Christ. And uh, we will punish that kind of disobedience, he says, once your obedience has been fulfilled. In other words, he's telling the people in Corinth, you guys have made a good start. You responded to my previous letter by confronting this sin and uh, disciplining in that situation with a, uh, an eye to restoration and love. If you make your obedience complete, then we will punish every disobedience and we will call all to obedience to Christ Not to Paul, not to any uh, individual, but obedience to Christ, to the Christ who is meek and kind and gentle. So let me ask you, how are you allowing God to use you to destroy things that keep others from coming to know him? Are there excuses you've allowed in your own heart? to keep you from surrendering to Jesus? Have you used those excuses to try to keep others around you from knowing him? 
Verse 7, you are seeing things based on appearance. If anyone is confident that he is of Christ, he must again reckon this, that just as he is of Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a bit much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed, lest I might seem to ever intend to terrify you through my letters, because they say his letters are heavy and strong, but his bodily arrival is weak. And his message amounts to nothing. Such a person must reckon this. That what we are in message through letters when away, we are also in actions when we arrive. So in Paul's absence, there's been this effort to twist the gospel. And Paul is warning the church in Corinth that you're just looking at the surface appearance of things. So often people make these surface argumentations of things that sound like they're kind of logical. And in our soul there's a sense, no, that's not right. I can't tell you exactly why, but that, that's not right. But we let ourselves be carried away by just this surface appearance of things. And Paul begins by telling his opponents in Corinth, if you think you belong to Christ, it might not be a bad idea for you to realize that I belong to Christ too. Have you ever lived through division in the church? You know what happens, right? One group of people feels like this is what we should be doing or this is what's important or this is whatever, who knows, the carpet or who knows what, what the earth-shattering dispute is about. But sooner or later, and both sides do this, you start thinking of yourselves as the people who are really listening to God. And the others are the ones who aren't. Right? That's, that's always the way we construe this. And somewhere along the way, we forget that we're brothers and sisters. That I belong to Christ, and so does this other person I am maligning. And if God is our Father and Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to rescue us for himself as his family, how do you think God our Father looks down on us when we're treating each other this way? You think he's pleased? You think he celebrates it? Paul says, remember that we're on the same team, supposedly, right? That we all belong to the same Christ. He will tell the Ephesian believers that our war is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against people. And now he talks about uh, people People apparently are accusing Paul of kind of lording it over the church in Corinth and being very boastful about his authority over them. And it is true. Paul recognizes, maybe I boast a bit much about our authority. And he knows that because God used them to start the church in Corinth, that they, what he says has a lot of weight in Corinth. There are a lot of people who uh, are, are very much indebted to Paul for knowing Christ and their understanding of the gospel. So when Paul says something, they listen. They care what he has to say. And that authority has been given him by God because God's the one who sent him to Corinth. 
And uh, he, he, he's uh, talking about this authority and he reminds them, you know, the reason God gave me this authority in you is to build you up. It's to make you grow and be stronger and better. It's not for destroying you. I'm not using this to tear you down. Now, some people use authority in the church exactly the opposite of the way Paul's describing it here. They use authority to browbeat into submission and to tear down the people that are being led and to fill them with a sense of inadequacy and incompetence so that they feel like they depend on the leader so that they cannot make a decision without running it past the leader and they cannot follow Christ unless the leader uh, illuminates them as to the will of Christ. That's not the kind of authority Paul's talking about. The authority Paul talks about is the kind that makes you stronger in Christ, that builds you up and makes you more competent to live the life in Christ that you were meant to live, not dependent on the authority, but, uh, but actually empowered by that authority to grow. Paul says, we've not been using this authority to tear you down, to destroy you. And he says, yeah, maybe, maybe I boast too much about this authority, but he says, you know what? I refuse to be ashamed about it. I'm not going to apologize for the fact that God has given me the ability to speak into you and for that to affect what you guys believe or understand because I believe that that is a legitimate thing that God has given me to do and I'm going to do it and I'm not going to apologize about it because I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to let it appear that my opponents are actually right, that all I'm doing when I write letters is try to terrify you into submission. I'm not going to backtrack and say, ooh, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I have not done what they're saying I did, and I'm not going to apologize like, it, like I did. I have not abused my authority, and I'm not going to apologize for making use of it. I have spoken into the situation in Corinth, and it has had an impact on the church because God so wanted it. Deal with it. But I'm not writing these letters to browbeat people and to terrify people. And there's the accusation. His, his letters are heavy and strong. Even his opponents recognize that Paul's letters, whew, they cut to the core. But his bodily arrival is weak. I suspect Paul is quoting his opponents here because... Uh, his bodily arrival is weak and his message amounts to nothing. He doesn't use the word that is used over and over. In the New Testament, there's a word erkomai that means to come or to go. And anytime anybody is coming or going, I mean, that word is all over the New Testament, erkomai. Uh, and... But so when somebody's coming, they'll just use that word. Or somebody's going somewhere, it's the same word. They use that word, but that's not the word being used here. His bodily coming... That's not uh, the, the way it's written in the Greek. The word he uses there is his bodily parousia. Are you all familiar with that term? It means appearing or unveiling or arriving. And the Christians use that word to talk about Christ returning. The day of his appearing, the day of his parousia. 
Consider the sarcasm with which his opponents are using this word. Yeah, Paul sends these letters that it's like Moses on Mount Sinai, but when the day, the long-awaited day of his appearing finally comes, what his message is amounts to nothing. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all vapor. There's no substance there. It seems obvious that Paul was perhaps not the most skilled orator in terms of public speaking. He was probably a much better writer than a speaker because he's, in his letters, he's often criticized for not being a great speaker. Paul uh, warns these people, you need to think this through. What we say in message through letters is going to line up with what we do when we get there. If you think our letters are forceful and uh, empowered by God, expect the same when we get there in person. We're we're not going to change our tune. We're not going to back off. Uh, This is important, and when I arrive, I'm going to confront this personally, uh, and and don't assume, isn't this the way, you know, if you want to talk bad about somebody, you want to talk trash about somebody, when do you do it? When they're right next to you, or when they're not there? We're all a bunch of cowards. We talk trash when the person isn't here. And boy, are we proud of ourselves and how smug we are about tearing somebody else down. Well, that's what's going on here. They're tearing Paul down, and he says, Yeah, uh, that that, that sounds great, but you're going to have to say that to my face before too much longer. And I'm the guy who's writing these letters, and (laughs) the guy who's going to be there in person is the guy who's writing this letter now. We're going to deal with this. Let me think, let me ask you, can you think of a time when you forgot that you and someone else both belong to the same Jesus? Verse 12, for we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves to some who are commending themselves. But when these people measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves to themselves, they do not understand. But we will not boast about things beyond limits, but will boast within the limits of the assignment that God appointed to us, a limit that reaches even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach as far as you, for we were the first to reach as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond limits in the labors of others, but having hope that as your faith grows, our assignment will be greatly enlarged among you according to our assignment, so that we may preach the gospel in areas beyond you, not boasting in work already done in another person's assignment. But the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul says, I'm not going to enter into this comparative Christianity. Christianity is not a comparative sport. It's not a sport at all. It's a family relationship. It's not a competition. We like to turn it into that. We like to compare ourselves. And we do this all the time. Where do I stand Uh, And 
somehow we all manage to kind of place ourselves with more people below us than above us, right? Somehow, I don't know how it happens that way, but all of our evaluations, our self-evaluations, tend to be a little complimentary, don't they? Nobody is the villain in their own mind in the story of their life. We're always the hero, even when we are the villain. Paul says, I'm, I don't even dare to try to enter into that way of thinking, trying to evaluate myself. Just how much more pleased is God in me than everybody else? Paul says, I don't do that. I have no interest in doing that. I don't dare to do that because evaluating me is not my job. I'm not the Lord. I'm not the judge. It's not my place. But he says, I'm not going to classify or compare myself to these other people. I'm not going to set us up and uh, let's compare each other. And he says, these people, they are measuring themselves by themselves. They're comparing themselves to themselves. And he says, when you do that, you just demonstrate you don't get it. You don't have a clue what we're talking about in Christ, if that's how you're going about life. And you might say, well, that's absurd. Nobody's going to uh, measure themselves by themselves. Nobody's going to compare themselves to themselves. Let me ask you to ponder with me. Over the past couple hundred years, three or four hundred years, the rise of denominations, right? In the Christian church. And... Um, it normally happens when a group of people get together and they say, let's interpret Scripture and let's write down what we think Scripture means and we'll call this our theology. And then we will define ourselves as this group of people who hold to this theology and we will identify ourselves with this label. And then when you do that, you have created your theology then you proceed to evaluate yourself by the theology you created and declare yourself to be right. And everybody else is wrong. Isn't that how we do it? We evaluate ourselves by what we ourselves, by our own preference and criteria, have established as the norm. And then we look down our noses at those who do not see it the same way. And boy, isn't that an indictment on the Southern Baptist Convention over the past 20, 30 years. They put into the Baptist faith and message the uh, version of the Christian faith they wanted, and then they proceeded to kick out everybody who didn't live up to the standard they himself established for the Christian faith. That's deplorable. That's hellish. And that is not the way we are meant to live our life. If we are doing it that way, we do not understand. We do not create the measure, then measure ourselves by it, and declare ourselves to be right and everybody else wrong. But that's the approach. People don't like to just say, no, all we can hold to is the Bible itself because, well, this guy says it means this and that guy says it means that and that guy's, right. So sit down and wrestle with it yourself. 
pray and ask God to illuminate you, to help you understand it, and to put in your path the teachers who will help you unlock its meaning so that you are not led astray. But don't just say, let you, uh, somebody else, uh, chew it up for me and tell me what it is. And Paul talks about his own ministry and boasting. Uh, and he says, no, I'm not going to boast beyond limits. I mean, there, I understand there's a very defined limit within which God has called me to operate. And uh, where Paul ministered was up to God. God is the one who appointed him and who assigned him where to go. You remember on Paul's second missionary journey, he was intent on going to Ephesus. And he was doing everything he could to get there, but Jesus did not let him. That's what Luke tells us in Acts. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow him to go to Ephesus. Instead, he sent him a, God sent him a vision of a Macedonian man saying, Come help us! And the very next morning, Paul got up and they traveled to Macedonia. And started churches somewhere Paul never intended to go. And he ended up going south and ended up in Corinth and spent 18 months in Corinth establishing the church he's writing to right now. And that was God's assignment. It wasn't Paul's idea. God sent him to Corinth. So he says, I, I will boast about what God is doing in the area I've been assigned to be a part of. I'm ready to brag about what God's doing. And I'll, I won't talk about things I don't know anything about, but I will talk about the things I'm personally involved in. And he says this limit of the assignment God has given us, it reaches as far as you. And what I suspect has been happening in Corinth is that he's been serving in Ephesus for two and a half years. And the people in Corinth are saying, why does Paul even write us letters? He's in Asia Minor. He's got Galatia. He's got all of Asia Minor. Why does, boy, he's ambitious. Why does he have to tell us what to do? Leave Achaia out of it. Leave Greece out of it. And you stay in Asia Minor. That's your area, Paul. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, what God assigned to us reaches as far as you. And whatever others say, we are not overextending ourselves if we reach as far as you. In fact, let me remind you of something. We were the first who reached as far as you to share the gospel in the first place. What do you mean we have no right or claim to be involved in what's going on in this church? But we're not boasting beyond limits in the labors of others. I'm not talking about what somebody else has done. I'm talking about what God has allowed us to be a part of. And he says, this is my hope, that as your faith grows. Notice Paul is trying to make the Corinthian church stronger. Not keep them weak and dumb so that they will follow his lead. But to actually help them mature. He's, he's, he, he is envisioning that there's a new era of ministry for him ahead. And he wants God to so work in Corinth that he is free to move beyond Corinth. So that our assignment will be greatly enlarged among you according to your assignment. So as, as they grow and become mature and Paul feels confident that he can move further west, he can do so without fear so that we may preach the gospel in areas beyond you. Not boasting a work already done in another person's assignment. Now, 
Paul is writing this in Macedonia. He will later come down to Corinth, finish collecting the offering for the saints, and before he sets out to Jerusalem to deliver the offering, he will write the letter to the Romans. And in that letter to the Romans, he tells them a number of things. He expresses this same idea of not uh, desiring to build on someone else's foundation, Romans 15, 20. And in 15, 23, he tells them, I am done in the east. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And Paul doesn't mean that people don't want him there. It's just that he feels like I have accomplished what I needed to accomplish here. The churches here are established and mature and they don't need me. And there are people who have not heard about Christ yet and I need to go to them now. And he tells them in 1524, I want to go to Spain. And I want you guys in Rome to be my last stop before I head out there. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what is percolating in his mind as he writes this letter to the Corinthians. And he's telling them, I'm not trying to lord it over you. I'm not trying to exercise this ginormous control. I'm trying to make sure that you guys are mature and strong enough that you can support me in prayer as I go further west. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. And this final warning, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. He takes that from Jeremiah. Jeremiah in, in his prophecy, uh, God's talking about the devastation that is coming on Judah. And he, the question's asked, why is this happening? And God answers the question, because you have forsaken me and you have turned to idols. And because of this, the land is going to be devastated. And God says, if you want to be pride, prideful of something, if you want to boast about something, you should be boasting about this, that you know me. You should boast that you have a relationship with me. That should be your source of pride. Not how much money you have. Not how much cattle you own. <coughs> and Paul kind of compresses that. The one who boasts must boast in the Lord. And here's what Paul says. The one who commends himself is not the one who gets approved. It's the one whom the Lord commends. I look out on the landscape of Christian leadership in this country and I, I see a lot of people commending themselves. I see a lot of people who are very happy with themselves and are very happy for everybody else to know how great they are and how right they are and how wrong everybody else is. But you know what? Their self-evaluation means squat. And even if it's the shared evaluation of all the congregants in their churches, it still amounts to squat because none of us is going to do the evaluation. Jesus is the judge. And the only commendation that's going to matter at all is his commendation. And have I been living this life in obedience to him? Or have I been engaged in a prideful attempt to establish my own worth? And I've used theology as the way to do that. Is my life governed by the gentleness and kindness of Jesus? Has my battle been against arguments that are keeping people from the knowledge of God? Or have I turned my attention elsewhere?
How do you find yourself evaluating yourself rather than seeking God's evaluation? Bickering and fighting has plagued the Christian churches for 2,000 years. We take the Bible, we use it to construct our theologies, we arrange our denominations around ourselves and set ourselves as the standard. And then we declare everyone else insufficient. Paul reminds us that we aren't the ones tasked with evaluating. Jesus earned that right at the cross. And we dare not overstep our position and claim the right to judge ourselves and others. The end result when we do ministry this way is a human power struggle that has nothing to do with Christ. But if we will put Jesus at the center of our lives, if we will pattern everything after his gentleness and kindness, we will discover that he appoints us to the assignments he intends. And he uses us powerfully to bring others to know him devastating every barrier in people's minds that is keeping them from coming to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. How are you going to do this Christian life? We're going to sing a song right now, and this is our time of response to the Word of God. As we're singing this song, there will be people on either side at the front to pray with you. I want to ask you to look inside and ask God, what what are you telling me this morning? And is there something you're asking me to commit to before you? Whatever that might be, I want you to come and take the hand of the person up here and share with them what God's put on your heart and let them pray with you and encourage you. Maybe you've never surrendered your heart and life to Christ and today is the day to do that, to begin this journey into knowing God. If that's you today, don't waste another minute of your life without God. It's not worth it. Come and surrender your life to him. Whatever it is God has put on your heart, come this morning while we sing. Let me ask you to stand.